Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 542, Four Questions. Speaking of questions, usually I take this time to ask a series of questions, but Dad's got a whole bunch of questions to get us started today. Plus, we got questions from Sadducees, from Pharisees, even Jesus has a question for us. So let's go ahead and get started with the conclusion of Matthew chapter 22. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 43rd episode of this journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're going to look at four key questions. Now, we see once again Matthew who structures his gospel so carefully. He, he's again using a grouping of three. We've just had three parables, and now we're going to have three successive questions by the religious leaders, followed by a fourth that is asked by Jesus. Now, these, these four questions and answers can really give us a, a good outline for understanding how to, how to navigate a disciple's relationship to the world, what to think about life after this life, how our lives are to revolve around two commands, and, and fourth, the, the nature of the Messiah who is beyond and outside of all time. And this encourages us to dig down into the mystery of his nature. Now, now these questions and answers are, are very timely for the season that we are in right now in the world, and they, in fact, lead us to other questions. For example, uh, what is the relationship between the church and the state? When and how much should followers of the Jesus way give to the state? When should they say no? What are the limits of loyalty? What can this teach us about Christian nationalism or about separation and isolation? What is the relationship between this world and the next? How are we to make love God and love people practical? And what can we learn about the true nature of Christ? Obviously, today, we're not going into depth on on all of these questions, but they do give us a grid as we look through these passages for lifting up our eyes from the temporal to the eternal. So let's begin chapter 22, verse 15, the political question. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, the setting is this. Judea, of course, was an occupied nation under uh, Roman rule at this time. And there was a lot of resentment. We see this all through history when a nation is occupied. And this resentment sometimes had led to significant uh, uprisings. Jesus saw the Romans not only, or rather the Jews saw the Romans not only as, as military and, and political oppressors, but also, and this was really offensive to them, as pagans who deified Caesar. That was blasphemy to them. So should God's people give money and thereby support to such idolatry? Now, it's interesting that even diametrically opposed groups of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, united in their attack against Jesus. 
You know, when, when Jesus had cleansed the temple, which we looked at a few weeks ago, he protested against uh, religious authority. But now these same religious leaders are trying to manipulate him or trick him into a revolutionary remark about civil authority. John Calvin said their chief aim is to alienate the people from him. They were setting a trap here. If Jesus said not to pay the hated poll tax, he would be denounced to the Roman authorities. He'd be seen as treasonous. If Jesus said to pay the poll tax, they would consider him a collaborator, and and he'd be rejected by the people. Either answer could end Jesus' influence in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. So they begin with obvious flattery. They're trying to get Jesus to kind of lower his guard, to say something he shouldn't have. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now, this is not a casual question. Actually, they're following a, a rabbinical tradition of, of how to pursue an issue to truth. That What they're really asking, is this law in accordance or this tax in accordance with the right doctrine? It's very pointed. They're looking for a direct answer. They're hoping that Jesus would either say it's right or it's wrong. Verse 18, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. There's several points here. First of all, Jesus begins by just chastising them, saying, you hypocrites. He used that term hypocrite four times in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, He was pointing out their their self-deception, their inability to see according to God's values. This, along with their using flattery to try to trap him, was what made them hypocrites. The word literally means play actors. So then when Jesus asked them for a Roman coin, a denarius that was used for the poll tax, he was doing something very interesting. He was pointing out that they were already participating in the Roman system. So their question really was a false one. Did you know some zealots had refused to pay the tax and had been so vehement in their opposition to it, they'd gone into the hills and became guerrilla fighters against Rome? That's some of the background of what's going on in this question. He says, show me the coin. Now, a denarius at that time had the image of Tiberius, who was the emperor. But around the edge of it was an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. The the coin itself was idolatrous and blasphemous. Something that I noticed here is that Jesus said, show me a denarius. He didn't even have one. This points out to his, his great poverty. The creator of the whole universe had to ask for the coin. 
Now, here's something interesting that you may not have noticed. In verse 17, the religious leaders say, is it lawful to pay the tax? Jesus now answers with a totally different Greek word that means give back to Caesar. What's he saying here? I think something very important and for us too. Jesus is saying, you are not paying Caesar, you're giving back to him what is his and what Caesar first gave you. By using Caesar's coins, they are acknowledging his authority and therefore the obligation to pay taxes. Here with this famous saying, you know, given to Caesar, pay back Caesar literally what is his and to God what is his, He's showing a profound respect for the state. The early church picked this up. In fact, there's an awful lot of writing in the church fathers about this and even in the scriptures. For example, Paul said in Romans 13, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Unless we think it's just Paul... Peter also wrote this in his first letter, second chapter, 13 and 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. The the coins represent not only the state's authority, but, but they represent its services, its benefits to its citizens, the, the roads, the schools. Uh, for us, the, the, the federal standards of buildings so that our buildings don't fall down, for food quality. You know, the early church fathers were united in this position. Justin Martyr said this, Since he, Jesus, has instructed us, we, before all others, try everywhere to pay uh, are appointed officials the ordinary and special taxes. So the tax is not an arbitrary imposition put on people, but it is something that is due for the benefits received. To refuse to pay taxes is to clearly demonstrate a lack of awareness and appreciation for all that the state does. I'm sure you, like me, every year, tax season, some some Christian, usually who I don't know, it's some circular, says, it's time for us to refuse to pay tax. But, but that is absolutely opposite to what Jesus is saying here and, and what was developed from that by, by uh, the church fathers and by John and by Paul, you know, Many of you may know this. I live in America nearly eight years, but I'm a Canadian. And this has been a hard week for me to be a Canadian because there's a a national protest that's going on against vaccination requirements. And and I am not saying that that there hasn't been overreach by the state or or there has been. I'm not saying either one. What I am saying is 
for a national protest where the flag is hung upside down, where one of our great heroes, Terry Fox, his wherever his statues are, they're, they're being defaced, that there's been uh, terrible profanity, that they've, they've gridlocked Ottawa, the capital of Canada, that, that I've seen uh, Nazi flags, uh, etc., and worse that I won't get into here, that frankly echoes January 6th last year. And then sometimes I have Christians, it shows up on Facebook, we got to get behind these guys, we got to stand up for our rights. This is just absolutely antithetical to what Jesus is saying. Every time that we use our nation's currency, that, that just like in Christ's day when they used their roads, when we use our roads, hospitals, etc., we are acknowledging that, as Jesus said, we are simply giving back. One of my spiritual fathers was John Wimber. And I remember him saying, I am happy to pay my taxes. Because in part, when I pay my taxes, I'm helping to care for the poor. Now, John gave to the poor, encouraged us in our churches to all give to the poor. But part of that was tax. So he says, render unto Caesar, give back to Caesar what's his, and to God what is God's. St. Augustine said, if Caesar can require his image in a coin, cannot God require his image in a human being? I love that quote. Jesus does not allow us to view that giving back to the state through taxes, etc., and giving to God are in conflict. Now, God gives us a boundary. He, he's the boundary of our allegiance to the state. The state is, Scripture clearly says, is God's servant. But, obviously, it can become influenced by the powers that be. We've talked about those before, the principalities and powers and strongholds. When a state or when a political party um, asks for unconditional loyalty for all its actions, then it has crossed the line. You know, I am so saddened. Just as I was this week, as, as I, as I said, as some of the texts and, and stuff from Christians, we got to get behind all this. I am so saddened that some in the church in the West have allowed the state to cross this line. They've just said, it's my country, right or wrong. You know, by mixing our faith with our political preferences, what we get is Christian nationalism, and it has so much been on the rise the last 10 years, and it is a great era, and folks, it's not a new era, a new era. It goes back to Constantine, 313. From that time on, it has led to the support of, of state-driven wars, and and scripture is so clear on that. It has led to tolerance, even support of racial injustice, of poverty. Every attempt, please hear this, every attempt to make our politics equal the will of God is always divisive 
and it always leads to destructive results. You know, if both parts of this verse, rendering unto Caesar and rendering unto God, giving to God, if they had been taken seriously, which is respect for but not unconditional allegiance to the state, we may have averted many, many catastrophes over the centuries. Now, it's hard not to fall off on one side or the other. It requires, as James calls it, the wisdom from above. I encourage you to just park in James 3, where he talks and describes what this wisdom is. Now, taking it to another level, again, as we do so often from the literal reading to the moral reading to the water to wine or spiritual reading, some of the church fathers saw this water to wine meaning in Jesus' words. Origen said this, Just as the coin has an image of the emperor of this world, so he who does the works of the ruler of the dark of darkness bears the image of him whose works he does. Jesus commanded that that image should be handed over or thrown away from our face. He wills us to take on that image, his image, according to which we were made from the beginning, according to God's likeness. So he sees a spiritual reading that say, give that to the world, keep it away. St. Augustine, he, he saw spiritual meaning in this episode in the following. We are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us, the image of God, has been worn down by our wandering. The one who stamps his image on us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin just as Caesar sought his coin. Do not withhold from Caesar his coin, but do not keep from God his coin. Let's go on to the next question. The the life after death, resurrection question. Verse 23, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question Teacher, they said, Moses had told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. Uh, The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So first, we had the the Pharisees and even the Herodians ganging up. Now we have the Sadducees. I better give you a little bit of a background on the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin, that that, uh, religious, really... uh, 
religious political gathering of the, known as the Sanhedrin was made up of both Sadducees, this group, and Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, they, they were mainly the upper class of Jewish life. They were the, the leading priestly families. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Ananias and his son-in-law, uh, Caiaphas. Those were Sadducees. The Sadducees were the sophisticated. They loved Greek philosophy. They collaborated with the Romans. They also, it's interesting, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. They didn't believe in anything beyond the natural. There were no miracles. There were no angels. There was no heaven. There was no resurrection. It was like believing these things was was beneath them. They were too sophisticated. So they present Jesus with really a ludicrous scenario of the woman and one husband after another after another all die. And they're all brothers. It was meant to expose what they considered the ridiculousness of the resurrection. So Jesus replied, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So you hear at this point, he gives them two reasons why they're in error. They, they don't know the scriptures. They're ignorant of the scriptures. And they're secular, really anti-spiritual, anti-supernatural worldview. Both of those just blind them. When Jesus corrects them on the understanding of the scripture of the resurrection, he is also correcting the Pharisees, who most likely would have been just standing right there, because the Pharisees needed correction on the resurrection for the opposite. They had very detailed uh, doctrine. It was like a false certainty of exactly what heaven would be like. They had set teaching on the hierarchy of angels and demons, etc. And this was one they taught freely. So as he's addressing the Sadducees, he's really addressing the Pharisees for their misconception. Now, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you sometime, verse, I think, 35 to 50 is just, it's a treasure on understanding the resurrection. Starting at verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body is the, uh, that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Jesus is saying here that we will be like the angels. We won't be angels. But in this new reality, there'll be no death. There'll be, there'll be no procreation. Therefore, marriage in heaven is, is somehow inappropriate. Now, now it's if we're not careful, we'll read this and we'll start to just grieve. I'm not going to know my wife or husband. I'm not going to know my family. What's going on? But Jesus is saying this about marriage, not about love. Here is what my hopeful expectation is. I think relationships will not be less than marriage. I think they'll be more. 
I think that the love between a couple will not disappear, but it will broaden so that no one around us is excluded. Another church father, Tertullian, said this, All the more we shall be bound to our departed spouses, because we're destined to a better estate, destined to rise to a spiritual partnership. We will recognize both or ourselves and those to whom we belong. Else, how shall we sing thanks to God to eternity if there shall remain in us no sense of memory of this relationship? Folks, we're not going to float around in clouds. There's something very concrete, and we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Verse 31, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So now Jesus answers the Sadducees, and he shifts from the manner of what resurrection will be like to the biblical truth of it. He draws from one of the most central and sacred texts to the Sadducees, Based, uh, they based all their teaching and all their understanding on the five books of Moses. And there isn't one that is more understood or more focused upon, rather, by the Sadducees. And in fact, in the whole Judeo-Christian world, this is a key scripture. Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. So he went to them, he, he kept it within their own restricted scriptures to show them uh, what God was doing in what they considered a major revelation. So, by the way, do you notice that the Sadducees, when they asked the question, they began with Moses said, but Jesus replies with God said. You know, the Sadducees, they almost idolized Moses. But Jesus, he knew and he heard from the Father. So what stands out there? I'll bet you've got it underlined in your Bible, too. He says, I am. This present tense stands out. God is still and actively, right now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are still alive. So let me just pull back for a minute and and share on a few terms so that we perhaps have a common understanding. From the earliest days of the church, There were clear views on these things of life after death, the resurrection, and heaven. But I want, this is really important, I want you to understand that in the early church, they were very, very clear to, to try to understand these things, but not ever to go beyond what Scripture actually says. To go beyond that, we're in the the realm of, I hope this is what it's going to be, or I think this is what it's going to be. Now, resurrection was a central belief of the early church. uh, At Christ's second coming, all the dead in Christ will rise. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. What does the dead in Christ mean? Paul gives us other pictures of of being asleep. This means that the body is asleep while the real person is in paradise. I'm sure we all remember in Luke, the thief at the 
at the cross, thief on the cross, remember me. He says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. N.T. Wright is very, very helpful in all of these issues about, uh, you know, life after this life and, and the resurrection, etc. And he said this, it is a state in which the dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ while they wait that day, meaning the resurrection. That's what he says. This is life after death. Notice it's conscious love, conscious presence. Now, this leads us to the the resurrection, or as, as Wright puts it elsewhere, life after life after death. There will be a bodily resurrection when Christ comes again. This is held to in the creeds. This is so important. I believe in the resurrection, the Apostles' Creed says. Christ's resurrection body, which to us I think is almost unimaginable in its glory, in its power, it will be a model. He's like the first fruits of what our own resurrection body will be. It will have new properties. Remember in the Gospels, they, after he, he's resurrected, they see him, and, and at times they think they know him, but they're not sure. He's kind of like himself, but he's kind of different. This new body will be a part of the new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. All creation is groaning in anticipation of this. Romans 8, 19 to 22. I love that passage. But the third aspect of this is heaven. Now, listen carefully, because contrary to what many people think, the Bible does not tell us we will go to heaven. You may be shocked with that, but let me explain. Isaiah 65 Revelation 21 and 22, the climax of all of Scripture, tell us that just as God made heaven and earth, he will then make a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven will come down, uniting heaven and earth. If you think about it, this is the answer to our prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Far from the idea of, of kind of this nebulous, uh, you know, we're sitting on clouds, we're just kind of in the presence forever, or as some people feel, it'll be like an eternal church service, by the way, they point to Revelation 4 and 5 with the hymns of Revelation, which is wonderful, but that's not the climax of the story. 20, 21 and 22 are the climax of the story. Anyway. Contrary to this very passive view, in the new world, the new creation, you and I, we will be agents of Christ's love that will be going out in, in new creative ways. He will, we will be accomplishing creative tasks right from him that celebrate and express the infinite love of God throughout the entire cosmos. It's a wonderful, wonderful view of what it is. Again, N.T. Wright, what creation needs is neither abandonment, which with some of our rapture theology, we're getting out of here, nor evolution, it's gradually going to get better and better, but rather redemption and renewal. And this is both promised and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is what the whole world is waiting for. Okay. 
having talked about life after this life and uh, resurrection in heaven, let's move on. The third question, the greatest commandment question, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So the Sadducees had just been defeated. They were silenced. And the crowd was clearly on Jesus' side. They were amazed, we see. So the Pharisees decide they better regain the initiative in their attack against Jesus. Matthew tells us that once again they were testing Jesus. Now, in the Pharisees' tradition, all of God's commandments are equally great, 613 of them. And they're all to be given equal weight. In one sense, that reminds me very much of the literalist approach in our day, where we see the scriptures, the Bible, as, as a flat playing field, that, that what, what Jesus says in, in Numbers or Leviticus uh, is, uh, is just as important. What the Bible says in Numbers or Leviticus is just as important as the Gospels or, or one of the epistles. But I do not at all believe uh, in that literalist approach that, that it's a compilation of 66 books, all inspired, but all written for different purposes, and they all are pointing to Jesus. The Gospels, to me, are the pinnacles of the Scripture. Anyway, I'll move on. The Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to choose a command. Um, they're hoping in this that he might alienate at least some of the people, because he didn't pick theirs. Don't forget Going all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, they were suspicious that Jesus had come to abolish the law. But now he gives them an answer. And in it, he sums up the central purpose for all of life. That is the sincere love for God and lovingly valuing people. He chooses two scriptures that are completely centered on love rather than tangible regulations. And isn't there something in us that that slips to knowing what the rules are? I want the tangible regulations. But he always pulls us back into the center. By sharing these two scriptures as the most important, he's saying that the single principle of love applies equally to the two main aspects of religious faith. The Ten Commandments, if you look at them, The first half point Godward, and the second to our neighbor, outward. The the Ten Commandments sum up the whole law. Well, if they sum up the whole law, these two commandments sum up the whole Ten Commandments. So what we have is the double love command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He answers them first by quoting from the Scripture, Notice Jesus believes in the divine authority of Scripture. He always goes back to the Scripture. 
And when he did that, he was quoting what's known as the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.5. This verse was recited by every devout Jew every single morning and every evening of their whole lives. This verse was at the center of Israel's history and revelation of Yahweh. Notice, love the Lord your God. Not just love the Lord who is God or the Lord God, but your God. So even in this, we, we are brought into something personal and relational. We're, we're created to love and be loved by the one who loved us first. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Our love for God is an answering love. It's a responsive love. It doesn't even rise up from us. This is why it is so vital that we truly encounter God and not just absorb and collect more information about him. Excuse me, verse 39 and 40. And the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus had not been asked for the two main commandments, but, but he gives two, and I think his suggestion, he's suggesting here that, that the Pharisees' view is too narrow, that the second command is just as important, just as central, just as non-negotiable as the first, love your neighbor. Now, I believe this, which is called the royal law, by the way, from Leviticus, and I believe that it's to be applied both to individuals and to people groups we must not ignore either dimension. Loving people must have a practical application. Neighbor love needs a target. But we must not ignore the corporate aspect of this love. One of the church fathers, Leo, said this, Neighbors must not be understood as those who are joined to us in friendship or nearness, but surely all men with whom we share a common nature, whether they be enemies, comrades, free or slave, for one maker fashioned us, one creator gave us life, the breath of Christian grace which extends to all parts of the entire world has been given to us greater reason, has given us greater reason for loving our neighbors. Beloved, this is really important. We need to love our neighbors. Our our love needs a target. But also, this embraces loving those who are suffering the effects of racial injustice, of systemic poverty. Uh, Child poverty in America just jumped January 1st again. Uh, Love for refugees. To ignore such issues that, that affect the whole groups of people is to stand in opposition to the very words of Jesus. By the way, I recommend that you read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. If you make a note of that, you can Google it. It's a letter written, I believe, in 1963 by Dr. King. And he is is so wonderfully articulating this very point. Jesus calls us to neighbor love. It's a, it's a high standard. It's a, it's a heart standard. 
But Jesus' double love command is freeing. He didn't say, well, here's the 613 laws. He freed us to focus our lives on two loves. And if we will do that, he said, don't worry about obeying every law. They're covered by simply loving God and loving people. And so we can rest in these two commands. That's why he said all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. Paul said in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfillment of the law. Beloved, Jesus always took the people and the religious leaders and now us to the center of everything, which is love. God is love. This is the core of all creation. It's the reflection of who Jesus is who created everything. Let's go on. The fourth question, the Messiah question, starting at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Then he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a single word in reply. And from that day on, No one dared to ask him any more questions. Isn't that interesting? So now, Jesus has been confronted with their questions, and it's time now to turn the tables. And he asks them a key question. You know, this question... Whose son is he? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? This question takes us all the way back to many weeks ago in Matthew 16, when he said to the disciples, first, who do people say I am? And then verse 15, who do you say I am? Now, the Pharisees' capacity to understand and receive Jesus' answers to the questions that they've brought right up till now it depends entirely on their answer to his question, who do you say I am? If if Jesus is Messiah, then all that he said to them is authoritative. Otherwise, it's just another man's opinion. But there's a second reason, I think, for his question. He wants the Pharisees to examine their own assumptions and inherited prejudices. Jesus wants to make them think, to to move out of a a closed set of ideas. St. Cyril, one of the church fathers, said this, The examination of important truths leads to salvation. Emmanuel is the Son and the Lord of David. If anyone would learn in what way he is to understand this, he must certainly begin the exact and blameless examination of this mystery. Jesus is talking to religious people who've got their systems. 
And they just, they just say almost by rote, well, this is the right answer to that. You know, we have to be so careful. Th- today's teaching, I, I just felt so convicted all the way through because I think it's so applicable for us right now. We are so easily influenced, so easy for us to parrot what we've heard from other believers or from the pulpit or perish the thought from social media. But we, we, we parrot without digging in ourselves. Also, we, we carry so many religious prejudices we, we're, we've got prejudices we're hardly aware of, even within the church. We're, we've got prejudice against progressive Christians or against fundamental Christians or Catholics or charismatics or on and on and on. And most of them, we have not really come to our own conclusion. We've simply inherited them from what we have heard and been taught by others. Folks, we have got to press in ourselves, to press in ourselves. Because if I'm going to be a follower of the Jesus way, then I need to press into the mystery and the truth of who he is and what he really says and not what I've heard other people. Does that not mean I can't learn? Of course. But the difference between learning and parroting without thinking about it is huge. In part, this is why I present to you every week from, from all kinds of points of view, evangelical, mainline, Catholic, Orthodox, ancient, modern. What am I doing? I'm telling you again and again and again, the river of God is wider than we think it is. And when we start parroting one position, that's a clear indicator that we're, we're in a narrow little creek or maybe even a ditch. Let's move on. Verse 42, he says, So what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. I would have said probably automatically. Jesus is implying his own messianic role with this question. He's not making an open statement. I, I, I am the Messiah. The time for that would be at his trial. But this isn't the time yet. It's only days away. He uses the term son of David. It's very prominent in Matthew's gospel. We've seen it five times already. Right from the beginning, we spent a lot of time on the genealogy. And Matthew highlights David in the genealogy. The title son of David explains Jesus' role as Messiah. And for the Jews, son of David and Messiah were synonymous terms. By the way, this is the last time in Matthew's gospel we we will read the son of David. Verse 43, then he said to them, how is it then that David speaking by the Spirit calls him the Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Several important points here. First, Jesus says, speaking by the Spirit. And you notice he didn't say David called him Lord. We've got, once again, present tense, like I am the God of Abraham. Present tense, he calls him Lord. Jesus is implying that that by still calling him Lord, 
he's still very much alive, and he's still seeing him and worshiping him and addressing him as Lord. I think probably, Matthew, there's an implication here of that famous phrase, Christ is Lord. These three words are at the center of the gospel. They're really at the center of all of the Bible. And it was for these three words, Christ is Lord, that so many of the cloud of witnesses, so many of the early church was martyred. By the Spirit, he says. So that, it, that tells me that, that this psalm, Psalm 110, originates with God's Spirit. It's not David being poetic and thinking something up. He says, until I put your enemies under your feet, Christ, through his crucifixion, his descent into Hades, and the resurrection, defeated the powers of sin, death, and Satan. The term is Christus Victor. This is what he did. Now, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In this this passage, the way Jesus is using it, it assumes a few things. One, that David is the speaker. Two, that David is speaking about the Messiah. And it's, it's also saying this, that someone who is described as my Lord is superior to the speaker. So a key question here is, who is that second Lord? Messiah is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. That doesn't fit with the Pharisees' idea of of a purely earthly and political Messiah who is going to come and make everything right and get rid of the Romans. Yahweh, the Father, invites someone to sit next to him. Not at his feet, but next to him. Jesus, the Son of God, is not less than the Father. We talked about this months ago. We so often see it as a pantheon with the Father, and then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit. No, he is not less than the Father. He is not somehow a smaller God. Jesus is preparing them to see that the Messiah will be more than a son of David. He'll be more than David's glorious, long-hoped-for successor. He'll be more than that. The question here is, how, how can someone be Lord of a father? Well, it's because Jesus is truly David's son as a man and truly David's Lord as God. This takes us back to the word hypostasis, which is a word that was wrestled with for 200 years, uh, the nature of Christ. And they, they settled on this, and rightfully so. Christ is fully God and fully man. Folks, I encourage you, Google the Nicene Creed and start reading it. This is the foundational creed from 325 and then went back at it again in 381, which lays the foundation for our faith. Fully God, fully man. That's the answer to this question. St. Augustine said this, Only what they, the Pharisees, could see did they know about the Lord. What they saw was the Son of Man. 
What was hidden from them was the Son of God. It is therefore a great thing to know the mystery of how he is both David's Lord and David's Son, how in one person he is both man and God, how in the form of man he is less than the Father, but in the form of God he is equal to the Father, how he can say both, the Father is greater than I, John 14, 28, and I and the Father are one, John 10.30, because it is a great mystery. Our minds and hearts have to be prepared if we will be capable of grasping it. Beloved, press into the mystery of Christ. Press in. All Through all of time, we will never come to the, the end of the depths of this mystery. But the takeaway for us here is Jesus is more than we think. He's deeper, higher, wider, longer. He is more than we think. And we must not be like Pharisees who put it in a box. This is what heaven is like. This is what God is like. He is, he's a wonderful, wonderful mystery. He is, he is the love of God, the love of all creation. But he's a mystery. So, from chapter 20 all the way through today, 22, we've taken several weeks on this, Matthew continues to present us with a steadily rising conflict. Now the religious leaders are speechless. They've, they've chosen to believe a lie about Jesus' identity. They've stubbornly held to their religious prejudices and assumptions which have blinded them to the truth. So in chapter 23, Jesus will hold nothing back in declaring the consequences of such willful, blind leadership. This is the chapter known as the seven woes. Well, God bless you. I've given you a lot today, but I hope you will really Consider it, meditate on it, pray about it, look at some of those things I gave you, whether it's the letter from a Birmingham jail or whether it's the Nicene Creed. I, I, I would love for you to become familiar with the foundation of our faith. Well, having said all that, God bless you. Uh, if you'll stick around in the next minute or two, Tim will be joining me. And uh, we'll just discuss some of the implications of today's teaching. Well, that was some hard-hitting stuff today. Uh, I, there's lots to dig into. Uh, hopefully, our listeners are still with us and didn't get grumpy and, and turn it off, because I think it was a really difficult word, but a very, very important one. Uh, would that I, should be challenging for Would everybody. I ever make anybody grumpy? <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. Not here. Um Hey, just before we get into some questions on today's stuff, I just wanted to update our listeners on two things that are happening right now. Yeah. Um, we had a really good meeting with uh, our partners in India yesterday. Uh, Isaiah and I were meeting with them, and they are right now on their way or already in Delhi uh, to get food and blankets to refugees who have fled Afghanistan. We've talked about that before. Yep. Uh, this is actually a different group than the one they have been working with. A uh, group of 100 families, uh, they 
somebody texted them, reached out to them in the Afghanistan community saying, hey, we heard that you're working with the others. Please come see us. We are desperate. The children are cold. Um, apparently it gets cold in Delhi at this time of year. Oh, yes, it yeah. does. I've been in Delhi in January. The sun does not shine. No. It's very, very uh, smoky and foggy, like yeah. so much you can't see more than a block or two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they're there right now. They've gone to, to bring food and blankets. Uh, and then secondly, I had a really good call with our partners in the Philippines this week as well. Uh, they are headed back to the typhoon victims, uh, which is, I didn't realize it's further away than I thought. It's, it's about a 10 hour drive. You know, I just want to say our partners, they absolutely are heroic. I was speaking to Pastor Ronalyn uh, because of time zones, she and I catch up quite late her time. So by the time she and I were talking, it was about one in the morning. Uh, and she was telling me that she had at around four in the morning, she had a team of 10 youth that were coming by her house and they were all going to climb in a vehicle, probably a vehicle, not big enough for that many people, uh, to drive 10 hours to go back to the typhoon victims to bring hope to a pretty desperate situation. There are about 500 children that they have, uh, really uh, targeted for this ministry who are mostly in evacuation centers that have not been able to return to their homes because they're too badly damaged. Uh, and these kids are traumatized and uh, are really kind of, they, they haven't been the subject of ministry from others because the pastors and, and local governments are working so hard to try and get things rebuilt. Uh, and so these kids just need love and attention. So we're going to feed them. Uh, we're going to bring them some toys and, and presents, gifts, things like that, uh, and just spend time ministering the love of Christ to them. And what I love is that Ronalyn is bringing these uh, these youth with her to yeah. really lead that charge. So imagine that that's discipleship right there is is bringing yes, young people is. along to go do the work of Christ. So and dri- driving ten hours to get there. Yeah, uh, Randeep, uh, depending on traffic, it's probably six hours, could yeah. be seven hours to get yeah. there. Yeah. And they don't think twice about it. They no, just go they where the need is. Yeah. Uh, it's very humbling. Truth be told. Uh, So anyway, all of that is made possible by the Isaiah 58 Feeding Fund. You've heard us talk about it before. Uh, That is a fund that is just constantly being used. So it's it's ongoing. It's been in place for years and years and years uh, in in Impact Nation's history. And it is just money comes in and goes right back out to these things. When you give to the Isaiah 58 fund, by the way, uh, 100% of those funds go directly to the field yep. for food. Uh, that's what they're there for. Uh, no administrative costs, things like that. It's just, it's food on the table. So uh, please consider giving towards that fund. Uh, I You give and it'll be food. Do you know how it started? No, tell us about it. I was in Africa because the Lord said, go to Africa. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, that's a big place. (laughs) And and then some connections started to happen. And uh, other than Kenya, I'd never been anywhere else. And uh, I ended up going around five nations. One day when I was driving uh, from Zambia into Zimbabwe... And it was, I can't remember, maybe a four-hour drive. The Lord just spoke to me suddenly. Mm. And he said, I want you to start a fund that is purely for feeding the hungry. And I want you to call it Isaiah 58. And so when I got back to Canada, I did. And from that day on, we've been able to feed the hungry, and I don't even know how many nations now, yeah. but it started 
that way, just mm-hmm. driving along, and yeah. suddenly he spoke. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, it's still going, and we're still feeding a lot of people. By the way, you probably heard, but we fed over a million meals uh, last year. Uh, and so we're just going to keep doing it because we love doing it, and we love seeing uh, lives rescued as a result. We've seen literally starving people rescued, and we've seen lives uh, just radically transformed because of that initial touch point of a simple meal. Yep. Uh, and suddenly they discovered uh, the beautiful gospel. Yep. So, uh, you can head to our uh, website, impactnations.com slash feeding, uh, and learn more about the program there. All right. Uh, let's, you know what? I'd kind of like to start with reading a scripture, actually, if it's okay, because you, you mentioned James 3.17 today, and I mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting, because during our prayer time yesterday, um, we have an online Zoom group that prays for Impact Nations each week, and somebody, that was that was the word that they brought to the uh, prayer gathering yesterday mm. was James 3.17. So I, if it's okay, I'd, I'd like to just read these two verses, uh, and I would encourage you, the listener, as, as Dad's been saying, go... Uh, just spend time in this scripture for a little while and ask the Lord what it means, uh, what it means for you, how it's convicting you. But uh, let me read this, and and maybe you, I can just get some of your initial feedback. Uh, this is uh, James three seventeen and eighteen. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure; it is also peace loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And that's out of the New Living Translation. Um, there's a lot of themes in there, actually, that we talked about today that you, you spoke mm. about. Yeah. Uh, the one that really jumps out is uh, peace-loving, yeah. gentle, uh, willing to yield to others. And, you know, you, you kind of called out some of these protests in Canada, and I, I think you made it very clear. You were not speaking to the issue that they were protesting, but rather the manner in which they're yes, protesting. Yes, absolutely. And that's really clear that we talk about that. So let me ask a question. Like... How do we engage uh, in public discourse? How do we engage in uh, political discussion and things like that uh, in a way that is in keeping with this definition of wisdom, seeking wisdom from above that is willing to yield to others, that's gentle at all times, uh, is peace-loving, and yet still make a point and not just be a doormat and let the government have their way when sometimes somebody needs to say something? And if you've got the answer to this, uh... Dr. King famously <laughs> said, as I'm sure you know and any of our listeners do, that the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Mm. And um, he learned nonviolent resistance, not passive. Yeah. And he learned it from Gandhi. Mm-hmm. And Gandhi learned it from Matthew's gospel. A lot of people don't know he read. Uh, the Gospels every day. Mm. And I'm not here to argue whether he's a Christian or not a Christian. I mean, he famously said, I'm a Christian and a Hindu and a Muslim. But he understood the profound power of this truth. Mm -hmm. And so rather than revolts and armed conflict that go on and on and on, as we know, he, he brought down the, the, the British Raj um, by con- just consistently 
not backing down, but never fighting. Just mm. saying, but this is the truth. And we will walk in the truth. And Dr. King did the very same thing. We all know. I mean, you've seen the movie Selma, etc. We must believe that truth has great power. Now, I can't even imagine the frustration of their followers and those two men as they saw injustice upon injustice. Sure. But they could see beyond to the end that Jesus is the truth and the way. Yeah. And so, for me, that's what I believe. You know, I, I, I've I, twice been on, uh, not very many times, right? But I've only twice that I can remember, been on marches. And, um, and one was angry in the 80s, and I thought, I never want to do that again. Hmm. And I heard Christians yelling and swearing at non-Christians and back and forth. You couldn't like animal farm who are the pigs and who are the farmers and then the other one i went on um was a march against racial injustice and it was contrary to what some media say it was so peaceful but it's that we're not we must stand for truth but we don't have to we don't have to engage in the kind of behaviors that have been happening both sides of the border now. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean, oh, well, okay, you you win. No. Mm -hmm. uh, the truth will set you free. Right? Yeah. Johnny? Mm -hmm. In terms of politics, you know, we you talked about we enjoy the fruits of our taxes. We get to, we get to um, drive on the roads and, yep. and uh, enjoy, for most of us, peace, peace in our nation. Um and yet, I I think it's okay for us to to speak up when we feel like our tax dollars are not yep. being used the way the way they can. So what you're not saying is withdraw completely no, from the political process. I'm not a pietist. Yeah. which do that. And you know what's one of the big differences in the situation? Because I purposely said they, their world and our world, their roads yeah. and our roads. What's one of the big differences? We get to go to the ballot box and yeah. vote. Yeah. And uh, of course, that was unheard of. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really big difference. Okay. By the way, you mentioned Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. and I thought it'd be probably helpful for people to understand what you mean by that. Can you just define the term Christian mm -hmm. nationalism? Okay. Um, it is when we blend um, our patriotism, which usually has particular political overtones depending where we're coming from, when we blend that with our faith. Um, it's really important to me that uh, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. He says that in Philippians. Mm -hmm. uh, that in uh, 1 Corinthians that we are ambassadors of Christ. Um, it has been blended all the way back to Constantine in the 300s when um fairly quickly Christianity went from being a persecuted uh religion group mm -hmm. movement to being the state religion. And so with that came this mix that uh, affected sadly affected uh, the church quickly mm. in terms of taking positions that were um not antithetical 
to the direction of the state. And so Christian nationalism now is um, very much this blend. Um, as I said, my country, right or wrong, um, you know, the it's almost um, when we, some of our churches have got mission flags, but then some have a prominent Canadian or American flag uh, that is often right beside the cross, mm. which is is such a non sequitur. Um, and the danger of it is that our allegiance starts to go to the state and where where what is being taught or presented uh, has got to align with current political trends or people frankly just leave mm -hmm. and they go find a church that yeah. is more in alignment with their politics rather than with their spiritual convictions. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very damaging. And certainly we've seen a lot of that the last 10 years especially, but frankly, I would say going back to uh, the 1980 uh, election, the Reagan-Carter election mm -hmm. is really when it was building traction. Yeah. And um, so I think it's dangerous. I think it's not helpful. And it is profoundly, I believe, unbiblical, mm -hmm. given some of the scriptures I shared today. And we've seen lots of it in the last 40 years, but you're saying it goes all the way back to Constantine. So yeah. it ain't new. Yeah. It, 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 the church changed positions on things yeah. um, to make it less of an affront to the state. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So that's a brief. I mean, we could be talking about that for Indeed. an hour, but uh, but I will go on record, and not everyone here will agree with me, but I think it is um, – uh, I think it's really in the opposite direction of – of being Christ followers, mm -hmm. of following the Jesus way. And um, I think it's very dangerous. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, if you've got more questions on this stuff, by the way, like we, we, we'd be really happy to engage with that. If you want to email podcast at impactnations.com, uh, I'm sure there's lots of yeah, buts out there. Uh, and we'd love to, love to tackle those. So we are aware that sometimes this can be kind of a one way conversation and we'd really like to engage with you. So, uh, if you got any further thoughts or questions on this stuff, feel free to write in. Um, Hey, can we talk a little bit about this heaven and not going to heaven thing? I thought you might, uh. <laughs> Want to bring I, that up? Is, I love N.T. Wright, and he does write on this stuff a lot, and it's it's really thoughtful stuff, and it's helpful. And I think that, um, I think heaven is actually one of those areas where we tend to, as believers, kind of parrot the things we've heard that have come before us, and not really dig in and say, "Well, what's the scripture actually say on yeah. this or whatever." Um, and so, you know, I'm a rascal too. So sometimes I like to just say, "Well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to heaven," and people go. <laughs> Oh no, what terrible thing have you done that disqualifies you? And then we get into the new heavens, new earth stuff. Um, but why, uh, I mean, partly I think why, why does it matter? I think about the Sadducees and you, the way you describe them, how they just don't believe in, in the resurrection. They don't believe in, you know, anything after you die. They don't believe in the miraculous, any, any engagement in mm -hmm. the supernatural. And I think, man, what a hopeless existence. That's yep. awful. Like the um, worst part of modernism. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and yet, I'll be honest, there's times that other, you know, I'm in conversation with friends who want to get into the, you know, what happens in the end times and all those things. And I'm kind of, I just don't want to talk about it. Like, I'm just not interested in the conversation. Uh, tensions can get high. People are very firm in their belief of what's going to happen and stuff. Um, other times I hear the entire pitch salvation pitch is pray this prayer uh, because you don't know where you're going to go when you die. You know, do you want to go to heaven is really a, a the fear, question we're a asking. A fear-based gospel. Yeah, a fear-based, or even if it's not that, it's just, you know, wouldn't heaven be nice sort of a thing. E- either either angle is still really, you know, the whole pitch is where you're going to go when you die. And it's up to us. And it's up to us. Um, so why is it important that we stop and actually really analyze what the scriptures have to say on this matter? Oh, great question. I think about it a lot more now than I did before. Hmm. And I don't think it's just a product of my age. I think just it's this whole thing of pursuing the mystery of Christ keeps taking me into wider roads. Um, I think that uh, if we come down on what I believe is a biblical understanding, we come down with a much more responsible faith and a compassionate faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's too much of a implied, well, I'm in and they're not going to be, they're going to get theirs. They'll yeah. be sorry. Mm-hmm. And I, I just don't see that in the Gospels. Um, I think it is, it helps us to understand, no, it opens the door to understanding for um, that life changes, but it's it's really not just, you know, 80, 90 years, used to be 70 years, that you know I so much believe that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and that he continues to pursue. Well, if I have a view that it's all about me, me going to heaven, mm-hmm. And then, as I said, I remember pastoring, I did a series on heaven, and I asked people beforehand, what's heaven like? And they all wrote, and I got it, and it was all the same. It was an eternal church service, because <laughs> Revelation 4 and 5, sure. which is a wonderful, I love it. You know I love to sing out of that. But that's not the end of the story. Besides, it's depressing. Can you imagine how long the announcements would be? <laughs> um, but... It's because we don't really think, and I think he wants us to look forward to mm-hmm. and imagine. I was reading this morning one of the mystics and and how how formative, how foundational, how keeping us moving forward is thinking about eternity with him. Yeah. So I think uh, those are some reasons that I think it's very important. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure I surprised a bunch of people today when I said that it doesn't say in the Bible that we're going to heaven. Yeah. That's Platonism. That's I was and so I'm glad you asked that or said that because I was going to ask like how did we get here? Yeah, with... Platonism. <laughs> it's it's Greek philosophy superimposed. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh you know it 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 really started um I would say from my understanding it 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 started early in the fifth century, uh, and it picked up some steam. And uh, by the time we get to Aquinas, I think it had more steam. Mm-hmm. 
And frankly, I think in the Reformation, an awful lot of uh, some of that carried over from the Renaissance. Yeah. I, I think I want to take a moment and just remind people it's okay to rethink these things. It's okay to go back to the scriptures and basically set aside what you have understood, set aside your presuppositions of what this text might say, and just come at it honestly and say, all right, let me. I'm going to put that aside for a minute. I'm going to read this and see what the scripture has to say, see what Jesus has to say on this stuff, see what Paul has to say. Um, and then decide if it's, you know, if it's worth picking up your old, old beliefs or not. Uh, I don't believe what I did five years ago. I'm pretty confident five years from now I'll, I'll think differently and believe differently than I do now. And I think that's okay. Yeah. That used to be really scary for me, to be honest, yeah. as I, uh, I kind of went down this path. And you, well, you, I mean, you observed yeah. <laughs> some of this journey, right, where it's ah, suddenly the foundation that I thought I had is, is shaky. And that can be scary, and I think that's okay. I think we need to embrace the process of rethinking these things, making sure we're holding Scripture firm, right? I mean, yep. Scripture is Absolutely. our guide. Absolutely. Um, but sometimes, as you said today, I think sometimes some of what we believe, we believe not because we read it in Scripture, but because that's, you know, we just somehow, these ideas were imputed to us over over time through Whether cultural things, you know. Or friends or the pulpit or yeah. whatever, and we yeah. just take it as if mm-hmm. that was ours. Yeah. You know, you and I, a few months ago, we really encouraged people uh, with Brad Jerzak's uh, latest book, mm-hmm. A More Christ-Like Word, because I think he gives us tools yeah. in that book. Yeah. Um, it's not about, oh, we've got to agree with every assumption or every conclusion that he makes, but rather he gives us gives tools. Gives us the tools to start asking these questions. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, <laughs> I would also say, by the way, uh, Brian Zahn's new book, uh, When Everything's on Fire, it really helped me actually understand a little bit like, oh, you know what? It is okay to go through this process and yeah. teaching how to cling to Christ in the midst of the process. Uh, and yet be willing to go through the process. So, um, I think I'll leave it there, but speaking of those two and, uh, our friend Cherith Nordling as well, I do want to remind people, uh, we've got the three of them coming to town in Albuquerque, uh, May 11th to 14th. If you haven't yet registered, do so today, uh, beautifulgospelconference.com. We're going to have an amazing time. There's going to be time for contemplation. Uh, there's going to be time of teaching, absolutely some really rich, teaching, uh, but then time to stop and reflect. And, and then the, and interact with that teaching. I was just going to say, to interact with that, to interact yeah. with one another. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had a question uh, earlier this week, somebody was asking if we were going to stream it online, and I, I said, well, uh, we're not. Um, but part of the reason for that is because there's so much value in being together, and I don't want to devalue that. I, yeah. I think that it's a really important part of this gathering. Uh, is <laughs> It's the gathering. It's the being together to dialogue about these things and just spend time in the presence of the Lord. I've done online conferences. I'm sure all of us have in the last couple of years, online conferences and seminars. And very often it's in the midst of distraction. It's, you know, well, I'll I'll listen to that while I get some of my work done or what have you. It's very different from being together. Um, We want this to be so much more than informational. We we really are are looking for formation to happen. And we want to see so many different streams mm-hmm. of the body of Christ come together. And we we know these folks pretty well. Yeah. And I know that I am absolutely confident as I've 
I'm reaching out around the world saying, come. I think it will not be, that was a great conference event. I think suddenly the gospel will become much bigger yeah. and more profound. Yeah. And you talked about that today in terms of like, we've got to, you said we've got to press in to the mystery of Christ. We've got to press in and dig deep and, and really explore this stuff. And I think we're going to do that together in May. So if you were listening to that and saying, well, how do I do that? Well, I think not only will we do that together, May 11 to 14, but also we're actually going to get some tools from some of these keynote speakers yep. on how to do that so we can go away. And that's the beginning of the journey, not the end. Yeah. So I think you and I would both encourage, as people are listening from different yeah. countries right now, uh, go online. You can either do our regular website. Yep. Impactnations.com. There's or, a link right there on or the homepage. You, if you want to go straight over to it, it's yeah. the Beautiful Gospel. Yeah. Beautifulgospelconference.com. Beautifulgospelconference.com. Uh, <laughs> but one way or the other, uh, I would say that this is the time. Yeah. I, I think that this is the time. And I you know, I got to, to meet with a pastor from a mainline denomination last week. Mm -hmm. He's so excited about it. He wants to reach out to others. I'm... Uh, you know, there's it's a broad, broad yeah. reach. We're yeah. saying to everyone, let's come together, yeah. let's gather. And we're going to keep talking about it here, so hurry up and register, and then we'll leave you alone. <laughs> um, one other small plug for our website, by the way. If you're looking for the Nicene Creed, uh, that is actually on our website as well, because that's in oh, our yeah. statement of beliefs. So that's if you head to impactnations.com, there's all sorts of good stuff there. You can find out about our feeding programs. You can find out about our conference. You can find out about the Nicene Creed. Impactnations.com is a pretty cool place to hang out. Very good. That is all I have to say about that, except to say impactnations.com slash podcast is a great place to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, you can catch all past episodes there. You can hit subscribe. Uh, the audio will be delivered directly to your device each and every week, so you can listen to that during your commute. Uh, or if you like to watch it, uh, we look pretty good, I think. Uh, this is a very good-looking studio. You should check us out on YouTube uh, or on Facebook. We release it there each week as well. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of the Impact Nations podcast, and we will catch you next week. When actually we've got some special guests coming, so I'm looking forward to that.